the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the dollar family that Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to drshelton.com or call 590-7878. Nature's Factor Carpet Cleaning Expert, Shayla James. What makes Nature's Factor better than the older carpet cleaning processes? Older systems saturate your carpet, leaving your space unusable, sometimes for up to a day because of their long dry times, plus leaving you with the risk of fungus and the dangerous chemicals left in your carpet. With Nature's Factor, our quick dry time makes your home or office space usable almost immediately, while our green solutions eliminate the possibility of fungus and are perfectly safe for your children and pets. Nature's Factor, carpet cleaning for the 21st century, 831-3535. The following is a pre-recorded program. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. Here's how it works. Listen to the Bible Live Scripture Reading Program. Not a program about the Bible, the Bible itself. Hear a 15 to 20 minute reading each weeknight. The entire Bible every year. Then on Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the past week's Bible Live readings. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. We are in the house. This is the Soapster. It's time for The Bible Live quiz show. Uh, Mark, did I give you your copy of the questions? Okay. And uh, Jacob's already got his. And look at us. We're all ready to get going. You know what? You know the drill, folks. We, uh, we're going to ask you some questions based uh, on our readings, coming out of our readings from this past week. We read Psalms 81 through 85, and then we uh, went from the book of First Chronicles right on in to the book of second chronicles this last week look at us well we made a lot of uh, progress we went from first chronicles chapter 25 which i think is toward the end uh first chronicles ends with 29 chapters i think yes and so we went from first chronicles chapter 25 right on into second chronicles chapter 18 which is no problem because as folks remember 
this, these are originally one work of history. This is uh, one book altogether, but it got divided at the time of the um, translation from Hebrew to the Greek uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation. So it just, you know, the division is just a matter of uh, logistics. It isn't divided there any for any particular um, spiritual or any significant purpose in terms of meaning. So, uh, so we went right on in Second Chronicles. Yep. When do we do uh, Third Chronicles? <laughs> Why don't we just divide it and make it a, a Third Chronicles? There you go. Uh, it's not. I suppose it's not that haphazard. We would have to make our own translation, Jacob, from from now English back to Hebrew or something. I don't know. We'd have to do. We'd probably have to do something significant in order to uh, to be able to get Third Chronicles. Uh, but I, I tell you what, about the books of the Chronicles, I am constantly having to remind myself, and I don't know if you have the same uh, inclination, Jacob, or not, or if, or if um, in, in, from, a, from a Jewish perspective, and that, that's what Jacob brings to our program, is together we, our desire, the purpose and intent of this program is for you, the listener, to be able to get more and more into the Bible, into the Scriptures. Not in some deeper meaning, sort of a, a code, secret code kind of way, but in the normal sense of this book. This book is very clear. It's not confusing uh, to any great extent. It tells stories. It's about God's involvement with some people, with a people group. And we get to hear about that involvement, the things that happened to individuals, to families, to whole nations, in fact, and we can learn things about the true and living God, about him, his character, about his purposes for in, for humanity, about his ways of dealing with, with his people, and, and uh, we can learn about his redemptive plan. We can learn how does man successfully and in a satisfying way establish, how can we establish a meaningful Confident, secure relationship with God. How can we experience God in our lives? That's what the book is all about. And uh, so we don't want to be distracted too much with uh, chasing rabbits and trying to kind of get the deeper meaning of the deeper meaning of the deeper meaning. If you you know that sort of thing, it's all right. There's a lot of mystery and a lot of beauty in this book and the in the way it's communicated. But uh, that's our purpose ultimately. Is are we getting to know? the author better and better are we getting to know the god of the scriptures and so uh we'll keep that in mind and i was going to ask jacob does the books of first and second chronicles i i keep presenting it as a special history in other words it's not like the books for example let's say of first and second samuel or first and second kings in the sense that those are those are kind of a more I don't know if you would say it this way, but more of a traditional, typical way of having a history. You have a history of the times of Samuel, uh, in his, in the King Saul, and so on. And then when you go into the kings, you talk about Saul, and then you talk about David, and then you talk about Solomon, and the kingdom divided, and so on. And we follow. It's just the history of Israel uh, through those particular years, the early years of the monarchy. And what happened, and how things went, and so on. Now, the book of Chronicles is a little different in the sense that it's not recorded 
live uh, in a sense. Uh, it's not recorded as a history, just sort of uh, here's everything that happened. I keep mentioning the fact that it's a selected history. I always kind of have to keep reminding myself of that, that Ezra is writing this somewhere around, what, 450 years before Christ. This is, or 500 years before Christ. This is written, it's, he's piecing together, he is compiling a history a story of the, of the and particularly it's not all it's not about all of Israel it's not about the 10 tribes the 10 northern tribes so much it's mainly about the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south it's about Jerusalem it's about the lineage the royal lineage of David uh David and Solomon and and then Jerob uh, and I'm sorry Rehoboam and then uh, Asa, you know this this series of kings. It, he doesn't bother with the kings of the north uh, of uh, Israel in the north. He just follows the lineage, the royal lineage of David, since he David is the lineage of uh, of promise in the sense of the Messiah, the messianic lineage. I guess part of the part of the reason is that important as well uh, from a Jewish perspective. Does that is that made the purpose of the writing of the books uh, of of the chronicles? Is that important, or is it that it's not really a history in the well? It's a normal sense. It's the history of God and proof that the Bible is the Bible to the Jews. Are they any more that kind of a proof than, for example, the books of the Kings? If you look at Kings and you look at Solomon, you'll find that it's got things in there that we don't find in Chronicles, and in Chronicles. What we're actually seeing is we're seeing like an objective meaning applied to the acts that all took place. With the, with the actual stories of David and Solomon and the sins of David and all they did, that's really a personal thing. But we're getting our lessons and our history that you can trust the Bible because it was it's like a chain of evidence. It went from this guy to this guy to this guy. So when you read their names, you know who they were and their story, and you'll catch the meaning. Like in Second Chronicles, we talk we talk about David. And there's lines there that mean things to perhaps Jews that don't mean things to non-Jews. Now that that makes sense to me because. Something that the Chronicles contain that the books of the Kings do not, you know, the history that we have recorded in the first and second Kings and first and second Samuel, they don't record genealogies, do they? Well, the answer is both a yes and no. It records it yes in a sense that it's passing it down. It gives us the names, but it's talking about how they, their personal problems or personal development. No, what I mean is, yeah, I know it holds genealogies in the sense that uh, it tells after King Ahab's death, the land of Moab rebelled against Israel and, right. and uh, who Israel's new king. And it gives a listing. But I'm talking about genealogies in the sense of Chronicles and, where it actually have a whole chapter uh, or two or three uh-huh. where it goes. Names, name, just long lists of names. That is more or less a characteristic of the book of Chronicles, right? It Not is because what you're tracing uh-huh. is God and his Bible. Okay. And so what you're tracing is it went from David to Solomon, etc. There are millions of people along the way, but they're not mentioned because they all existed. But the truth is, when we write American history, we'll talk about George Washington. We won't talk about me. 
I will. You will? Okay. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that we're going to talk about this is proof that it went from this guy to this guy yeah, to this guy. I get that. And and that, it, that is a very And what you're thought. looking at is the actual hand of God passing it, and therefore their names are only important yeah. as it was passed down. So we can say, I know this is the Bible because Solomon had it. He got it from David. David got it from X. That kind of thing. That makes sense, and it really kind of helps to understand the significance. I've always known there had to be some gen, some real genuine significance to this uh, seemingly endless list of names. Sometimes we complain about the genealogies. We think, oh, they're so boring. Who cares about this one and that one and begat that one? Oh, and you know what? These things are so, not just to me perhaps, but these things are so fascinating to me. I mean, yeah. they, and, and they are to me in a way. Now, uh, about the third or fourth years, I begin to read through the scriptures. I begin to recognize more and more of the names, and I would, I would remember the story behind these individuals' names. And it was, a, in a way, it was a way of thinking through the biblical narrative. It was a way for me to think through. Oh, I know that guy and that guy's name, and that. Oh, yeah, I remember him, and and it helped me kind of connect the dots on the. The the idea of God intervening in history and speaking and acting, and it helped me kind of connect the revelation that God gave him of himself through these people. So I think that is that is a legitimate way for us to use the genealogies. But you're talking about something slightly different in the sense that you're saying that it becomes almost a it becomes almost an evidence for the inspiration of the scriptures because it, 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 it's one of those. It's an evidence for the historical reliability and the uh, uh, the truth of the scriptures because it it has been guarded, it has been kept, it has been safe kept and and intentionally, carefully passed from this generation to this to this, and and so that it adds credibility to. Uh, to the historicity, right? Is that what you, in one way? Yes, when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say, hey, by the way, go look at Psalm 23. He said the first line, or Psalm, is it Psalm 22, I guess. Yes, uh-huh. He, he said, go look, he said the first words of it. So people immediately. My God, it. my God, why have you forsaken me? So yes. if you hear a song today, you know the song. And that's what happens with these names. When you hear these names, you know the sin they're passing it down. You know what happened because now all this has a name. Yeah, and of course that makes sense in the Chronicles because, as we've noted and as we've emphasized all these times, uh, and and folks, I hope you're getting this. Those of you listening, as we talk about these books of First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, <coughs> excuse me, as we're talking about these passages. Remember now that Ezra has written this book with this intent. He's trying to remind these people who have returned now, some forty to 50,000 of them, in three distinct journeys. Three distinct, uh, they're not pilgrimages as such. They were, uh, they were allowed to return from this, these years of uh, exile in Babylon. Uh, what was it? King Cyrus uh, then allows them to return, and in three different journeys, three different groups, 
And they come back mainly, I would say, probably the majority being from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah in the south. But uh, I don't know if we're given that kind of uh, specificity on each. No, of these no. The Chronicles starts off broad, and it begins to narrow itself at the end of the first Chronicles with David, uh-huh. and then it follows the kings. So they, they, so Ezra is writing this history uh-huh. with the. Now remember, these are men and women. And young people and, you know, teenagers and whatever that made this 900 or 1,000-mile journey from the east, from Babylon, back over now to Israel. And they've they've struggled. It's been a difficult journey. It's been a difficult uh, to come back and repopulate the land and and rebuild many of the buildings and get their homes back in some kind of a shape and, and rebuild the temple. And it also is supposed to carry a larger meaning with it. May I give you a quick example? Sure. All right. And uh, you haven't asked a question about it, so I'm not going to give away something. (laughs) But um, in chapter 27, 1 Uh Chronicles, and it's verse 23. Uh, In the verse I'm using in English, it says, David did not take a census of those under 20 years old of age because God had promised to make Israel as numerous as the stars. Now, if you are only taught that numerosity or the numbers mean, uh, as the stars, that it's all about numbers, we are messing a particular meaning in Chronicles. Now, you recall from Genesis it says to Abraham, I will make you as numerous as the stars and the sands on the sea, right? Yes. All right. Now so we, is, is David alluding to that promise when he, he makes this absolutely statement? absolutely is, and this is why. All right. If you don't know the Torah, the first five books, you will not catch the importance and meanings of many that's going on in these books. When David says stars, it's this. When the... It's not about numbers, though numbers are included. Stars are this. When the Jewish people follow the first five books, the laws of God, they shine like stars in the heaven, and there's lots of stars. But when they do not follow the books of the Torah, the first five books, they're like the sands. They're still numerous, but people walk on them. <laughs> so when they're when they're good, when they follow not God, good. Trust God, good has nothing to do with it. Well, it has I, to do with the laws of God. When they are when they are sincerely seeking to follow God and uh-huh. obey God, yes, uh, and trusting in God, that's right. Then the the symbol that is applied mm-hmm. to them is that they are as numerous as the stars. Uh huh. But whenever they are not being obedient and right. they're being disobedient, and yes. for example. A lot of things happen to them. They are often judged by God. They are punished by God. They are they're kind of spanked. So God tries to bring them back to faith in Him. But they are referred to as sand. Yes, because they're not following the Torah. You don't follow the Torah. You're still numerous, but you're like sand. You follow the Torah. You're numerous, but you're like stars. Uh, he's not moving the needle there very much, Mark, if we need to uh, uh, raise uh, the level there a little bit more or not. Okay, I don't know. I, how am I doing? You're doing great. What you're saying is, is, is great information. I think this is good for us to have this conversation. Well, it's good because, see, this is a Jewish book. And, and it's important that people understand what the Jews meant when they wrote it. That's wow. what I'm getting at. That's the important thing, yes. And so when David is saying, 
Uh, he was numerous as the stars. That means my people are going to follow God's laws, the Torah, the first five books. Okay. And they'll shine. They'll be numerous, like beyond number of the stars in the sky. Okay. Because they're following law. But if they don't follow, they'll still be numerous, but they'll be like the sands, and people will walk on them because they're not following the Torah. And that was really kind of the, the passage you're referring to in First Chronicles chapter 27. That was that ill-fated census that David took on his own initiative and that actually we get some results from it, but it says here the total numbers were never recorded in King David's official records, that Joab, son of Zeruiah, began the census, but he never finished it because the anger of the Lord fell on Israel and so it's a very interesting little incident there. And the reason for this is because in the Bible, you are not allowed to reduce a human being to, to a number. To numbers, exactly. That, that I've captured, and, I, and I, I have gotten that. That's the, the core reason that David got in trouble over this census, uh, is that census would – it was a very delicate thing to do. You were to only do it evidently under God's initiative and God's directions. There were times when he called on uh, people to, for example, in the wilderness, he called on Moses to take a census to count the uh, people 20 years old and older that were as they were preparing to, uh, to go into the promised land. That's right. There were times. But in general, the people were not to be numbered unless God, unless God actually gave that direction because – the principle there is that people are not to be reduced to numbers, and uh, and they didn't want to distract people. Their faith, their trust, their confidence had to be in God, in His Word, in, their, it had in to His be, promises. But it had to be not in not in be, their strength of their military. No, it had to be in God, as you say. But it had to be in obeying God's laws. And in the very next chapter, chapter twenty-eight. And this is not one of your questions. Well, that's how they show their faith in God is by obeying his law. That's, yeah, it, that's how we as believers today if you express our faith yeah. toward God is by walking in obedience uh -huh. uh, to well, him. And David, in the next chapter, when he's going to build Solomon build a house, it's uh, verses uh, still it's 28, and it's verse, uh, uh, I don't know, verse uh, 8, 6, I guess, in the 6. And he said to me, he says, your son Solomon will be the one to build my house and my courtyards, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever, provided he is firm in observing my commandments and my laws as he does now. There is the difference between stars and sand. Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. Yes, I, that, is a, that is really a very good reminder. And you have made me see that this whole thing of, of David, look what he says up in the verses before that. Um, the Lord God of Israel has chosen me from among all my father's family to be the king over Israel forever. We remember when Samuel went to uh, uh, Obed, was it Obed that was David's father? Uh, who was David's father? Was it Obed? Jesse. Jesse. Yeah, there you go. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father. Okay. So he went to Jesse. We remember that. When Samuel went and he found these children and he said, is there anybody else? He said, well, I've got one more son out in the field watching the sheep. And, and Samuel found him the youngest of the children of Jesse. 
And so we remember that. So he's chosen me from among my father's family. For he, uh, and he has chosen the tribe of Judah to rule, and from among the families of Judah he chose my father's family. And uh, from, the, from among my father's sons, the Lord is pleased to make me king over Israel. But this I like, from my many sons, from my many sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. That's an interesting thing because it wasn't automatic that it was going to be Solomon. There was a little bit of a battle to see who was going to uh, follow David. And you've kind of helped me see that there was a little bit of politicking going on for that. We see it in the scriptures, but uh, we saw Bathsheba step in and so on. And maybe we can talk about that a little further as we get into the books of Chronicles. Folks, don't go away. This is the Bible Live Quiz Show. We'll be right back. And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com, or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hi, I'm Eric Galindo, training director for the FSI Training School. For individuals and businesses, we offer certification courses in CPR and first aid through the American Heart Association. And also the Vehicle Safety Inspector course for the Texas Department of Public Safety. Courses are available every week for your convenience. Call me, Eric, at 210-314-2615. That's 210-314-2615. The following is a pre-recorded program. The following is a pre-recorded program. To the Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. We are back. Thanks for joining us for the Bible Live Quiz Show. We got to get some questions out there, Jacob. We've uh, spent our time talking about these passive. Hugely interesting, and we're going to continue a little bit that conversation about this this transition now from First Chronicles into Second Chronicles, and the importance then. And uh, Jacob is trying to point me to this uh, mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter one, the fact that it mentions Bazalel, 
who was mentioned way back in Exodus chapter, what was it, Exodus chapter 3? Uh, 31. 30, okay, 31, that this man who uh, helped with the construction of the uh, temple, and particularly we're talking about the altar, the, bra- the brass, uh, the bronze altar, and he mentions uh, one guy and doesn't mention his assistant. So, uh, and, Well, no, and, may I add, that's not an assistant. That's okay. a co-equal 100% partner. Okay, well, I don't get that from the passage. We're looking at Exodus chapter 31, uh, and look what Mo- the Lord says to Moses. Look, I have specifically chosen Bazalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in making and working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Oholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Uh, I don't I don't know the version you're reading, but he's not an assistant. But. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I commanded you to make. Now, no matter kind of how you read it, it looks to me like a, a, not not a preference. It's not a matter of preference or, or even importance, but it looks to me like Basilel is kind of listed as in more detail as the kind of the maybe he's the owner or the head of the construction company and no, Oh Holy is, is one of his. He's a high status guy from the tribe of Judah. So they are just two guys supposedly supposed to work together to help build this beautiful temple. Well, it says God filled them both with the same talent for the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they both... They, and, and what happens is, but Solomon only, clearly, the two are he only, Yeah, I the, do see that in Second Chronicles. The two are mentioned, but clearly he, he in only, Chronicles, he only mentions one. Yes, in Chronicles, he says, uh, he only mentions, uh, where is that? In uh, There it is. In chapter 1, verse uh, 5, but the bronze altar... Now he's only talking about the bronze altar here. Uh-huh. Maybe bronze. Maybe Bezalel, son of Uri and grandson of Hur, was the one who made that bronze altar. Not not the other guy. I mean, in other words, they they built a whole well, great that, number of things. That truly could be a possibility. And if we're left to struggle with trying to make sense of it on our own without knowing the history and the rest of the terms, okay. that can come out that way. Okay. But if we know the stories, then we know that they worked together and cooperated to build everything. And he's mentioned the, the bronze altar because we're going to this time of the dedication of the temple, and Solomon's going to walk up. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of that bronze altar. He's mentioning the bronze altar because... It was part of the scenario here. It's part of the, the picture that's being painted, the scene that's being described. That's right. Is that this altar, the bronze altar made by this Bezalel son of uh, uh, Uri and grandson of Hur and so on. So you're saying there is a significance. Oh, I'm there is some reason. I'm not just saying it in Jewish history okay, okay. and there are all the scholars. And, and I'm, I, I, I understand that. But what you're emphasizing to us there from that tradition is that the fact that it only mentions Bezalel here as the one who built that bronze altar and yeah. does not mention the Oholiab, the guy oh. from the tribe of Dan, yeah. that that tells us something about Solomon. It does. That's the point. And we all want to believe that God likes the poor person as much as the rich person. 
we all in our hearts need to believe that. Yeah. Um, and yet we have... And God, the scriptures declare that God is that well, way. Well, it's declaring it that way right here in this passage, except unless we're sensitive to the Jewish literary forms, we don't catch it. Okay, explain. Well, by this selection of only mentioning this guy from the tribe of Judah, you end up with the little guy, the little guy who... The reason it was the little guy from Dan. The oh, holy guy from Dan. Yeah. He's not mentioned. So we've learned something about Solomon. His approach to the world is for gold and wealth and accumulation. And the reason he mentions this guy is because this guy came from that status. And he's from Judah, he which is, is Sol- Judah. I guess That's Solomon's right. tribe. Uh-huh. You got it. As opposed to Dan. Uh-huh. Is, is Judah more of a wealthy tribe or something? Well, is that part of the, the understanding of the text? Certainly Judah was the tribe that the kings were going to come from. And so we definitely know that we David and Solomon, they come from Judah. We know that. So you know, so the catch is, is that what happened to this little guy from Dan? And so he's not there, so we've learned something. In my example I mentioned earlier, if you and I built the White House, mm-hmm. and then somebody was talking about it, and they said, so we built the White House? I the house that Soapy built. Uh-huh. Yes, well, I would indeed. come back and I'd say, gee, now why would the guy not mention me? What, what's operating with that guy? I get it. I think I can. I mean, I get the understanding of it, and and what you're saying is something we, to some degree, we already know. Yes, that see, Solomon everybody... got distracted by wealth. He got distracted uh-huh. by women. He got distracted by fame and position and all of these things, and it led him away from following the Lord. To uh, he he kind of began tried to. There was a sense that he be, tried to begin well with his dedication of the temple and so on, but then fairly quickly. Tracked off into disobedience, tracked off into being distracted by all the uh, the idolatry of his many, many wives, what, 700 wives, and mm-hmm. I don't know well, how many. Well, there's no doubt that he inherited a character flaw from David. Okay. David had lust, and it got magnified in his son Solomon. And then the Solomon's son that took over Jeroboam magnified it even greater. It, it, not only lust, but the whole idea of these, these, I'm thinking of these political marriages where he tried to use marriages as a way to kind of seal these different alliances with these different countries and so on. I guess that was a part of, somewhat a part of all this. But it it is a strange thing, this obsession with so many wives. How weird that is. It was never God's plan, right? If we read the Bible as just a history book, Mm -hmm. we run around with a history book. If we read the Bible as a holy book, we get other things out of it. And what we're being taught is, is that we have the struggle, as Paul would say in the New Testament, we have the struggle between the animal side of us and the spiritual side of us. And so we're being told that Solomon has really kind of lost this battle. In fact, I know this won't mean anything to a lot of non-Jewish listeners, but it's very significant to Jewish readers, uh-huh. is that it's uh, Solomon prays in this portion. He says, I pray in the first chapter of uh, Chronicles. He says, he says, I pray for wisdom and knowledge. God says, okay, I'll give you wisdom and knowledge, but... See, a Jewish reader would catch me to there's something missing there. Understanding. Understanding. All right, I know that if I go out, a wheat, a wheat seed will grow wheat. I know it's bread, but I, if I don't have understanding, I don't know how to make that wheat seed become bread. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's, that's clarifying. That's helpful. And so uh, that's what Solomon does not ask for, uh-huh. evidently, is understanding. 
Well, it, we are clear, and, and that does add to our understanding uh, that we even get from other indicators as well, that Solomon did not, uh, although he was had this great wisdom supposedly and so on, that we see illustrated by his dividing of the infant, you know, threatening to divide the infant in two, this baby in two, and so on. Uh, and we think, oh, how brilliant and how wonderful that was. And it was. I mean, it is kind of a very interesting uh, step he took, and it does indicate something. But we do know that Solomon did not walk obediently to the Lord, trusting in God. And and to some degree, he ended up destroying the very nation. His father David had given him the nation of Israel at the peak of its power, at the peak of its wealth, at the peak of its influence. Uh, and Solomon took that nation, and in 40 years, he pretty much drove it into the ground. Is that an accurate understanding? Is that yes? That, we, I think everybody would agree with that. And the reason is, is because he did not do what the commandment from God was to obey my commandments and my laws. To be a son, you can be a physical king descendant, biologically so, mm-hmm. but you will not be a son of God unless you obey the commandments. Unless you obey and walk faithfully. In obedience to the Lord, to his commandments. I, I get it. That really is helpful. And it's it's a perspective I think evidently uh, I need to cultivate more of that understanding. Maybe we as Christian believers need to understand that. It, it seems something that the, in the Jewish mindset and the Jewish understanding of the scriptures that you're more sensitive to, that you're more, that you have a greater handle on that idea of the need to walk uh, by faith in God and express our faith in God by obeying Him, uh, we 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 tend to emphasize so much the the faith part and the finished work of Jesus the Messiah and so on. But we forget the idea that hey, if we really do have faith, as James says in the book of James in the New Testament, if you really do have a true, sincere, and uh, genuine faith, it's going to express itself in. Ob- Acts of obedience to God and to His commands. You're going to you know, see it. And somebody told lived me, out. Yeah, somebody told me today. Uh, as somebody we both know, uh-huh. I was talking to them on the phone, and they said to me, somebody they they like a great deal. They they said, look, once you accept Jesus, you're saved. You've got your salvation. And then the the particular preacher this person likes said, and then what? And then what? Well, you see, for the Jew, we know what. Because God told us what I'm going to be honest with you, Soapy. I have no idea what right and wrong is without the laws of God. I suspect none of us do, uh, except the indwelling Spirit of God who teaches us and guides us. But He always teaches us and guides us in harmony with the expressed Word of God. I mean, He's never God is never going to the Spirit of God is not going to contradict in our behavior and our attitudes. In his guidance in our lives, he's not going to condense. He's not going to contradict his expressed word. Well, that's what always. Frankly, that's why you have these people saying today, for example, I'm, I'm living out of wedlock. Or I'm, I'm shacking right. up with this lady or that, or I'm, I'm having. A, and they say, oh yeah, but, but you know, uh, the the spirit gave me that freedom. That God has led me, and 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 how can how would the spirit of God lead someone to do? Something against the very clear expressed will of His Word. Oh, thank you for saying that. That is that is the nutshell of my point. I cannot ever believe when somebody says to me, "The Spirit's leading me," and they're absolutely going against what the what God has said to do. 
It just can't. It, it it cannot be, and we're told that actually in the scriptures as well. And that's the that's really the tremendous value. One of the great values of the scriptures is that we're not left to just sort of a subjective idea that well, the spirit told me, and you know I did this. We have a we have an objective guide. We and that's one of the great values of the scriptures to us is that we can extrapolate from from these commands and from God's dealings with his people in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, we can see uh, it, it can kind of be a, it can be a plumb line for our spiritual instincts that we think, well, this is, this is what I think. This is my opinion, and it makes sense to me, and this seems better. But, whoa, wait a minute. You know, what you think and your opinion and your kind of a spiritual sort of subjective ideas – they are not on the par with the express, clear, expressed will of God, and so that's why that's one of the great values of the Bible is it protects us from that kind of subjectivities, that kind of a well. This is God told me this. Well, no, He didn't, because His Word says something else. Well, that's one of the things I personally have a great hard time with mm. is when I hear six guys say something that God told them. God told me this. God and, told me that. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sitting back and I'm wondering. First of all, how come they God's telling different people different things, <laughs> and, and I also wonder, how come it doesn't match up with what yeah. it clearly says in the Torah? It makes me a little nervous, I have to confess as well, when I talk to believers. I know it's a very common thing among us as Christians to say no. And I think there's there's an element of truth to it. I mean, in in the context of our walk and our relationship with God and the indwelling spirit, and, and of course, in, in accordance and in, in, in harmony with his word, it can be that God spoke to me, God shared me a truth that was really helpful to me, and I don't have any problem with the idea that God's speaking into our heart and our lives. Uh, but uh, the fact that you say God told you that doesn't necessarily mean to me that I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily take it for granted that, you know, God told him that. I'm going to listen, and I'm going, hmm, does that make sense in terms of the Scriptures? Does it contradict any of the principles of God's Word? Does it, and so there is a, there's always that that little bit of an objective protection, that little bit of a plumb line, and it really we we need to learn to use it as a believer. And I got to tell you one other thing, Jacob. We're, we're having I enjoy the conversation with you because this is really really helpful. I think one of the great problems we have in American Christianity, in some ways, is that we have a very incomplete view and understanding of salvation. You know, your friend that was saying to you, uh, or the pastor that was saying, uh, now I'm saved, and, and then somebody said, and now what? That is a question, <laughs> that's a question that needs to be asked to a lot of American believers, because we, could, we put so much emphasis on the, um, the aspect of salvation, the justification, the new birth, the beginning of our relationship with God. Um, we put so much emphasis on, you know, are you saved in that sense of saved from the penalty of sin? Your sins are forgiven, and you 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 have the guarantee of heaven that we're going to be with God and the promise of God, His faithfulness. So we put so much emphasis on that front end decision. We don't realize realize that that decision is just it's not the end of anything. It's just the beginning of a of a lifelong and even eternal destiny of walking with God and growing in God and being transformed. Because God does not not only give us forgiveness of our sin, he also promises that he's going to now work in our hearts to transform us, to take out that lower base animal impulse, that sin nature that we have, and to replace it with a new nature, a higher nature, that, that, 
the spiritual, the, the new person that we are in Messiah, the new person we've been made to be because of the redemptive work of Jesus the Messiah. So we we emphasize justification and in our American culture, and we don't tend to emphasize a whole lot the aspect of sanctification, the ongoing, continuing work of God uh, beyond forgiveness to actually transform us, change us, take the lust out of our lives, take the greed, take the lying, take the dishonesty, take the insecurities and the fears and the uh, the selfishness in all its different forms, take that and change us. And, that's, of course, that's a process. It's not a one-time it happens and it's over with. We've been declared legally before the throne of God to be forgiven and cleansed and perfect, but now the sanctification is the process of becoming what we already are, becoming in our experience, in our life experience, what we've already been declared to be in Jesus the Messiah, holy and righteous and pure and cleansed. You know, in the and Lord's, it's, so, it's so important. You know, I don't know how we miss it. Well, in the Lord's Prayer, where uh, Jesus says that thing about let the kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. I have no difficulty with no. For me, I think I know exactly what it means. And it means. Is it talking a little bit about that sanctification process, that I, transforming? I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know what sanctification means. Okay. But I know this your kingdom come, your will on earth. The will is God's laws. He's saying, do God's laws on earth as God make earth like heaven. Okay. That's what sanctification means. Okay. <laughs> Sanctifying, in other words, we think of salvation in the in the Bible as kind of, it, there is only one salvation. There's a, to, there's a total pure, total work of salvation. It's not like there are three different salvations. But it is a more complicated process than just declaring someone to be forgiven. Uh, what what we have in the human, and I'm I'm saying this to you, Jacob, so that maybe we can discuss it and see if there is a harmony with the understanding there that you're talking about. It seems like there is, but part of salvation is I have been delivered. I have been set free from the penalty. Of sin, in other words, uh, because Messiah bore my sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us we have we have been because of his atoning work, we have been given forgiveness, we have been declared before the judgment seat of God to be holy, to be righteous, to be uh not guilty, so we've been forgiven from our the state that our sin, past, present, and future sins were forgiven. Sin would never become again between us and our relationship with God. Now, it might interrupt our fellowship with God, but our relationship with God is because it's based on the unchanging work of Jesus and the Messiah and his work on our behalf. So that we've been pardoned and forgiven from the penalty of sin. But then that only sets in motion a second phase of our salvation, which is called sanctification, and that is where our, we, like I said, we've been given a legal status before the throne of God as perfect. And we've been clothed in the righteousness of Messiah himself, we're told in well, the book of I Ephesians. Uh, uh, yeah, so I now think, yeah. that process, it's a process of that, that holiness and that righteousness coming down into our – into a, tr- replacing our old impulses, our old habits of thought, our old misunderstandings. So there is a growing, ongoing process of being – becoming – in our practice, in our in our real life experience, what we already are legally 
in our status and our positionally before the throne of God. Does that make sense about sanctification? Well, uh, yes, and I think it's important that I should learn more about the use and meaning of these words to a non-Jewish person. Because those words now these ha- are biblical words. I know, but that, justification that, and that, sanctification that has meanings yeah. that is rather foreign to me. Yeah, they're more. They're, I think they are more New Testament concepts in terms. Paul brings them out a lot because Paul, in the, especially in the book of Romans, because he uses a lot of uh, of quasi legal from the from the world of now you should know some of this from being a lawyer right but he uses uh, Paul does a lot of this terminology because they were somewhat out of the greek language they were used in the in the uh in the legal system of that era so sanctification was that second phase okay. and it's a lifelong well, process does sanctification have to do with any form because unless i'm misunderstanding does it have a form with salvation it, it's not a form it's a it's a continuing phase of salvation. Let's say I've often thought of it from the Old Testament point of view, for example. I think we see a picture of it. Now, I think you see Yom Kippur differently than maybe I'm going to describe it, but let's just see. And remember, I have talked about Yom Kippur. Remember, there was a Day of Atonement, uh, and there were two animals, two goats. One goat, the, 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 priest placed his hands on the on the penitent person, or, or the priest, uh, being symbolic, representing the people, placed his hands on the goat, and the sins of the people were symbolically or passed to the goat, and the goat's throat was cut, his blood was shed, and it was sprinkled on the on the um, on the um, ark of the covenant between, into the holy of holies, and so that was a sense of atonement, in the sense of legal. Your sins have now been atoned. the 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 soul that sins it shall die with a death. That the symbolically, the the uh, the goat. But we know we're not redeemed by the blood of goats. This was looking forward to the work of the Redeemer, the Messiah. Symbolically, he took the guilt of our sin, and on that basis, we were given right legal standing before the throne of God. We were given the gift of forgiveness okay, and but cleansing. Then after but that, there was what, a second goat. The second goat was taken out. In other words, and it symbolized not only the redempt, not only the forgiveness, but the idea that God is taking the sin out of the camp. He's going to continue His work in us to actually remove the sinful impulses, to remove that old base animal nature, to remove what we call the old nature in the New Testament. He's going to be working with us as a process. To re- God is not only committed to forgiving us, but he's also committed to making us holy, in our not just in our legal status of holiness, but bringing that holiness down into the very warp and warp of our being so that we live out writing his laws on our heart. These, I know you know those, those words and that, that idea. That, that's a process of God is transforming us from the inside out by the power of his spirit, and that's sanctification. I see a picture of it there at Yom Kippur with the two goats, one representing justification, the other representing the removal of sin, taking the sin out of our lives, the process of sanctification. Would that be a something that could relate? I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I'm strangely like those Greeks in the book of Acts, that this will take more study. <laughs> I get it. Well, I'm glad we're at least we're talking about it because it's it's – it's one of those points that I know. Yeah, because, sometimes we because hang up. I, I, 
I understood, correct me if I'm an error, but I understood that Jesus provided salvation for dying for the sins. Yes. Okay. The I, atonement. Okay. Whatever we got. But, but we remember got the, he said, I got to go away okay. so that the Father will send the Spirit. All right. So, but that's what I got with that. Now, how to live, see, from a Jewish point of view, the laws never, ever, ever were thought that they could get you to heaven. They're taught how to live on earth, how we treat God, how we treat other human beings. So for me, that tells me how I am supposed to treat other people and God. No problem. We're in total harmony on that. I guess maybe the point is this. You would never think that you could atone for your own sins, right? Uh, I don't know that I could agree with that. What I'm saying is that only Jesus, only the Messiah, the Lamb without blemish and without spot, could actually be the definitive uh, payment for our sin. We can't – the wages of sin, the consequence of sin is death, separation from God. Wages of sin is death and payday is coming. So you couldn't purchase your own redemption. I mean, I couldn't die for your sins. Why? Because I've got my own sins to atone for. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, so what I'm saying is that we can't, we we could not, apart from the work of the Messiah, be justified before the throne of God. It's because of His shed blood that we are okay, forgiven but, to but Once we get in the same that, way, we how can't. Do we, live? we could. That's what I'm saying. We also have. We cannot live in our own effort, in our own strength, and power as well. We also, in order, we have to. We have to experience that by faith as well. God has a provision, and that is the Holy Spirit. Hey, folks, we'll come right back. We've got just a few seconds here. Don't go away. Dr. Stan Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me, plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. Nature's Factor carpet cleaning expert, Shayla James. What makes Nature's Factor better than the older carpet cleaning processes? Older systems saturate your carpet, leaving your space unusable, sometimes for up to a day because of their long dry times, plus leaving you with the risk of fungus and the dangerous chemicals left in your carpet. With Nature's Factor, our quick dry time makes your home or office space usable almost immediately, while our green solutions eliminate the possibility of fungus and are perfectly safe for your children and pets. Nature's Factor, carpet cleaning for the 21st century, 831-3535. Hi, I'm Eric Galindo, Training Director for the FSI Training School. For individuals and businesses, we offer certification courses in CPR and first aid through the American Heart Association, and also the Vehicle Safety Inspector course for the Texas Department of Public Safety. Courses are available every week for your convenience. Call me, Eric, at 210-314-2615. That's 210-314-2615. And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. 
The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for The Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888 That's P.O. Box 18888 San Antonio, Texas 78218 The following is a pre-recorded program. Oh God You've been so good to me You came and found this orphan and you brought me right in you're listening to the bible live with soapy dollar and now i'm shouting you got me all right, we are back. <laughs> Jacob just said, now are we going to get a couple of questions out there on the airways? And I really do want to, and we will. But this is so. This is something, Jacob, I have been trying to communicate to our listeners so long. Because as I just told you, I think we as American Christians have a problem in the way that we present the gospel in that we only talk about forgiveness that's all we ever talk about is we've been forgiven of our sin and I'm going to heaven. And we talk very little a bit about the transformation of our life, which is also a part of the salvation that God well, has given. I, we need more than forgiveness. May I respond in a, Please do. a compliment in another way is that the Jews rarely talk about going to heaven. It's an assumed thing, but it's not talked about. What they talk about is how you live here on earth. Okay, and I have caught that from you, and I'm, I'm – what I'm seeing is maybe tonight we're having a little bit of an opportunity to kind of, I felt like we were making kind of a little tiny bit of communication and progress toward the idea of a, of emerging an understanding of our theology, of our own, what is called soteriology, the theology or the doctrine of salvation. And uh, and I think I see an opportunity for it. Uh, I'd like to continue, if we could, to talk a little bit about this oh, whole idea show. Of, of, <laughs> okay, of sanctification. Now, we understand the idea of being forgiven and cleansed, the, the atonement, you know, a substitutionary atonement, we've been forgiven. We don't have a, dis- a confusion disagreement on the idea of salvation, but after that's there, then what? Okay, that's what I'm saying. We, that's, the, that's the wrong mindset. After we're saved, then what? Well, we keep on being saved. <laughs> in other words, salvation is not a one-time thing where you become this and all of a sudden it's all, everything's over. There is a process of where we become in our life experience what we already are legally 
in our legal positional standing before the throne of God, thanks to the work of Messiah. And I was going to give you an example of that in the in the process of a, a person who becomes a citizen of the United States. He comes here, he lives here, he, he jumps through the hoops, he does the studies, he applies for citizenship, and he takes the test, the language test, the constitutional test, and all those things. I don't know if you've ever known someone who's gone through the process of becoming a... Grew up with many of them. Okay. A naturalized citizen of the United States. Well, there comes a day when they finally stand before the judge or before the official, they raise their hand, they take that oath of loyalty uh, to the Constitution and to the country, and officially, legally, they become a full-blown citizen of the United States. Before any, thro- before any legal standing, their legal status now is that they are a full-blown American citizen. Is that the end of everything? No. Because then that begins the process. They go on learning more and more. Now, they know that they have all the rights and privileges of an American citizen, but they don't know what all the rights and privileges necessarily of an American citizen are. But they have to now are. obey the law of America. Oh, of course. That's, that's inherent because now they are an American. Well, obeying they, the law of America analogizes to me as the law in the Torah. Okay, that's fine. But I'm saying the person, why did he want to become an American citizen? So he could obey those laws. He has a loyalty to that constitution and those laws. He desires to keep those laws, but learning how to do so is a process. He doesn't even really know what all of the laws, you know how thick the laws of the United States are and the state laws and all that? I mean, there's huge numbers. So he's, although he is legally already fully established American citizen with all the rights and privileges and so on, he now he begins to walk out that experience, and and he begins to internalize what it is to be an American citizen, and he he continues learning, and he's going to find out he had some wrong misconceptions. There were some holes in his understanding of what it means to be American. Now let's translate to the to being a child of God, to being the people of God. We've been made citizens of heaven. We're given forgiveness, and our legal status before the throne of God is that we are righteous and forgiven okay, and cleansed. Okay, so you're a citizen. But now we be yeah, you're a citizen now of heaven. Okay. But now we go through the process of becoming in our daily practice, in our lives, in our attitudes, in our understanding, in our mind, in our in our our opinions, and so on. Now we're in the process of being, and that's what is called sanctification. The process of becoming in our practice in our life experience, what we already are positionally and legally before the throne of God, thanks to Messiah. And that is the ongoing work of salvation called sanctification. And that's one reason for the second goat. And that's also one reason the the Holy Spirit now, Jesus said, I need to go away. I've done my work on the cross and the Messiah and the purchasing redemption. Now the Spirit of God is going to come and he's going to walk within you and he's going to superintend this process in your life of learning, of writing God's laws into your heart and transforming you and and putting not only forgiveness and cleansing, but now he's going to bring them to reality, to fruition in your personality, in your uh, in your life, in your daily life. And that's the process of sanctification. Does it make sense? Well, I it believe, does so much I, to me. I, I and believe, I think we become, as American believers, uh, we need to become much more I, I understanding think, of that. Yeah, I think you're quoting what's he, in uh, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, that says he'll write the laws in your heart. Well, it's in Jeremiah and, and uh, Old well, Testament as yes, well, through, of course. Jeremiah, yeah, Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah. That's yes, correct. Right. But, uh, but I was giving some illustriousness to the Hebrew of Hebrews. Good for you. You know you're 
your New Testament, Jacob. Yeah. Well, That's I don't great. know about that. Uh, I know what it says. I don't know if I know what it means. Yeah. But at any rate, um, if he's writing the laws, he wouldn't be writing the laws unless he expected you and wanted you to do them. Of course, yeah. So to me, in your analogy, if a guy becomes a citizen, he now is expected to do the laws where he's a citizen. Is it not also expected that he wants to do that? One would hope. Why would he even become a citizen if he doesn't want to be a well, citizen? Some, and sometimes live. you got to support your family. You know? I, I get it. Okay, we're getting off into the. Yeah. I don't want to carry the illustration. I, I but know. I think it's intended that if I, if I want to be a citizen of this country, uh, it's because I, I want to live under the laws of this country. I believe that was originally the idea, and that's that's the ideal idea. But uh, and I, so I get it. But to carry your analogy, once he's got his citizenship. Uh huh then how does he go about it? He doesn't get to choose his own ways to live. And for me, God was very explicit. He said, look, I, I'm going to tell you right from wrong. Exactly. And this is what is right. I'd like you to do this. I'm going to walk with you and instruct you and guide you and teach you in how how this works. The, how it, and, and see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit now. He is our divine escort to glory. He is the one who is walking us through this process of sanctification, well, of transforming I, I, us. I have, I have no problem with that, but the, but as I personally think that you're you have your own responsibility, and sure. and he may be your, he may be your escort, but you have to do it. Oh, of course, but the problem maybe we're having here. Is just as you had to be, just as you had to be justified by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and like Paul says in Romans five, we have just as we are justified, we are declared innocent and forgiven by faith, by total dependence on the work of Messiah on our behalf. Yeah, but that's the what, work of sanctification is also something. Now what? Well, the work of sanctification is something that we also do by faith, and we express our faith in that process by obeying God's laws. Obeying of God's laws is not an end in and of itself, because we we are incapable of obeying His laws perfectly. Um, that's I, I might disagree with you on that point, but that's okay. I think that we are incapable of. The scriptures are very clear that we are we have a sin nature that has to be restored and renewed. And that's why the Holy Spirit is there, is to enable to. It's not a matter of wanting to obey God. I understand. Every child of God uh, wants to obey but God. But the animal part of us, certainly, I would agree with you that we can't obey it. The and animal we struggle. Part, yeah, we struggle but against the spiritual it. side of you. You can. In fact, Moses says in Deuteronomy, "The law's not far from you. It's not across the ocean. It's not in heaven. It's right here. It's close to you. You can do it." Yes. And he's saying the same thing in the New Testament. You can do this, and he has spent he has sent his Spirit to enable you, to empower you, to teach you, to guide you. Well, now, I agree. He doesn't say you're going to do it on your own effort. Anybody can just keep all those laws, we, because it's not even a matter of even just keeping laws. You know, writing them down. Okay, I did that check checklist. It there. We're talking about the holiness of God himself. I don't think anybody's ever sponsored the idea about just keeping routinely and coldly and harshly no, laws. No, and I don't think you are either. I never have thought that. But I'm trying to make the point there that that to for us to keep all the commands of God and to express perfectly in every attitude of our life and in every behavior of our life from morning to night, 24-7, 365 days of the year – 
we are incapable in our own power and strength of doing that. We well, need the, the enabling one of the laws of God God's is repentance. Exactly. And That's so a part it, of our life experience. So it, we've got to be able to keep that one. Exactly. So if so we can't pick and choose which laws we like. No. We've got to take them all as a one ball of wax. And part of the laws is to repent. And that's why there was a national holiday given what you call the Old Testament, the Tanakh, that we know for sure that on Rosh Hashanah you make corrections of what you've done to wrong the human people. On Yom Kippur you apologize to God for what you've done to him. Right, I understand. So it's not that you can't do it any other time. You can do it oh, any time. I think we live in perpetual repentance. Uh, we, well, we live as God's people. But in it's per- important to understand that God himself gave a, a national holiday. So sure. we know, I know you did it, you know I did it. I, I understand that. But we live in a constant attitudinally as God's people, we live in a constant state of humility and brokenness before God, knowing and understanding that uh, we need his forgiveness, but also that we need his power and his enabling and his, and his guidance and teaching us in order to, to, walk, to walk out his laws in the right way in the, in the real world we live in. And so, that, so all I'm saying is that that process of that's also something that we do by faith. We trust in the power of God's guidance and the enabling and power of his Holy Spirit to to change me. Not not so I just don't have lust, but to take out a way out of my heart the tendency to lust. And that's really... Where it's not even an impulse well, in me anymore. That's part of what's going on in the book of Chronicles. It's giving us these, yes. n- these nuances yes. of how we learn by this master teacher I think of these right. fine points of when is this right and when is this wrong. And that is... That's why... I, and I think it's, it's appropriate that we talk about this theme of sanctification, this aspect of redemption, of salvation, in the context of Chronicles, because that seems to be a lot of what... Ezra is doing now. These are people who they truly want God. I mean, they left, they've traveled 900 miles or 1,000 miles in dangerous territory. They truly give some importance to God and to the promises and the covenant of God and God's laws. Well, I'll support, so they demonstrated that. I want to support what you're saying in a little different way okay. and a very Jewish thought. Any way you want to support me and get me out of this mess, I would. Okay, well, okay, but I'm going to support you. Now, okay. in the Jewish understanding of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of bondage, out of Egypt, out, out, uh, out, of, the, out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. That's the first commandment. Now, the reason that's important for Jews is this. God is not saying, I made heaven and earth, and I'm a swell guy, and I'm all powerful. That would mean nothing. He's saying right in the first commandment, I have done something with you. I will support you. I will be there. You can't do this by yourself. I'm the one that did it for you. So you see, in the way the Jews read the Ten Commandments is very much what you're saying. It occurs in the New Testament about the support and the walking mm-hmm. with you. So right there in the commandments, the very first Jewish commandment of the Ten, the Protestants, Catholics, and Jews mm-hmm. number them differently, but the Jewish and I might say biblical way of numbering the commandments, the first one is, I am God that brought you out. I did something for you. I don't just exist. If I existed and I did nothing for you, what good am I to you? Mm -hmm. So he starts off by saying, I did something for you. Now, this is how I want you to On that basis, this is what my expectations of you as as my people. And and all of that resonates with me in the whole process of becoming a part of the people of God is – I just think as American believers in particular, 
we tend to emphasize so much the cross. And it's not, folks, like I'm trying to be disrespectful to the cross and the shed blood of Messiah and, and how it purchased uh, our redemption. Sophie, I want to tell you something. I, I know you very well, and I'm going to tell you something. There's nobody I could ever <laughs> point to that's more honest in their personal life than than you are. And well, your personal life is your public life exactly the same. You're a very, very dedicated, very honest man. So I just want to say that uh, there's no doubt in my mind that you'd never defame anything. Like thank that. you, Jacob. I, it would not be my intent, at least. Uh, but I think we need more. We need to see the work of redemption and salvation as believers, as Christian believers, beyond just the work of the cross. And that sounds almost heretical to us. But remember, the gospel story doesn't end at the cross. Three days later, there's an empty tomb. The power of God came and, and revitalized this this body, this human body. And so we have there a picture of, the, of this idea of 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 sanctification. This is the, the brought now that we've come, we've been atoned, and our sins are forgiven. Now that very supernatural power of God in the Spirit of God that brought the body of Jesus back to life, that same power is now at work within us, enabling us empowering us, teaching us, guiding us to become in our practice, in our experience now, what we already are in our intent and what we already are in, you know, because of faith in Jesus, what we already have been declared to be holy and righteous, uh, legally, positionally before the throne of God. So the the process of sanctification, we still walk it out by faith. We're trusting in God's enabling and his guidance to uh, it's our very intent to obey God in every way and to comprehend and internalize all of his commands. But that's part of the work of the Spirit is to he is writing. He is the one that's going to help us and guide us into that transformation till finally it'll be finished. The work of salvation will be finished, and that's called glorification. So we have justification. We have sanctification. I have been delivered from the, the from the penalty of sin sanctification, I am constantly, every day, being saved, being delivered from the power of sin, and then glorification will be that, that, and there's no other word but glory to describe it, when we will be together with our God, with God's people, in, in glory in heaven. And not only will we be forgiven and cleansed, but the very sin nature will have been totally removed, replaced with a new nature that seeks God's holiness and desires and has God's that out of our out of our very being flows a new set of desires and wishes and longings, and that is to honor and glorify and obey our great God, and He will have finished His work. That's called glory. That's called the work of glorification. All of those are to be experienced by faith, and we will now someday. Of course, the faith route will be over. Faith will be finished. We we faith will be replaced replaced by sight. In actual experience, but for the moment, we walk by faith. And I, I've been wanting for the longest time to address that topic of sanctification, and I, I think it's so needed among us as American Christian believers. I don't know uh, how you relate to it, and how you. I think you're kind of, for the first time, we've kind of had a little bit of a, huh? I see what you're saying, and we're kind of comparing our insights and thoughts and well, about again, the, I'm going to quote about the, the process, you know. Yeah, I'm going to quote the Greeks in the book of Acts. I think this bears more study by me. <laughs> That's good. And I'm, I'm content with that. I hope it makes sense. Uh, it's, a, it's a great blessing, I know, in my own life, when I stopped trying in the flesh, in my own strength, zealously, intensely trying to please God in all my ways. And I realized that by myself, in my own strength, I'm incapable of doing that. I was a believer. I'd, I was already redeemed and saved at age of eight or nine. I've been walking by faith 
in my forgiveness and, and with the Lord for many years, zealously trying to obey God, but may I, I finally realized I couldn't do it in my own strength. May, may I ask you a question? Yes, please. Uh, okay, if it's fact, an unfair question, you can you can handle it. But you can, I might yeah. say I don't know. <laughs> well, it's this: um, Do you feel that uh, if God said it in the Bible, and we accept that God's Bible is the Bible, mm-hmm. and of course for the Jews, the Torah is the paramount, the first five books. Um, but the, it, do you believe that it, you should follow it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Does it help if I say something specific? Let, let's, I'm a young, I thought I'm a, yes was pretty specific. I'm, I'm eight years old I, I, when I trust Christ. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm zealous for the Lord. I memorize scriptures. I'm learning. I'm growing to respect my elders and do this and do that and the other. I get to be a teenager and I bump into this thing called lust, and I begin to wrestle with, uh, you know, attraction to to females and so on. I begin to, I begin to wrestle with the the, the selfishness of lust and the dehumanizing of other people for the benefit of my own fulfillment and gratification. All the, all the things that lust. And I know I'm picking an ugly. I could pick another example because there were many other areas of struggle, but. This is one that a lot of us can identify with. No, I think your ratings just went up. So <laughs> that was why I did it, of course, of course. No, but what I'm saying is that I begin this this decade long struggle with to to not objectify women, to not lust, and to to be pure in my thought life and in my understanding. So I begin to do this. Now, what I realize, and and not only that, there were other many areas of honesty, of not exaggerating, and you know. Our struggle against selfishness, okay, so and i'm I'm trying to be God's person, I'm trying hard to obey God's laws and his instructions, and I, i'm I'm wrestling with that. What I come to the conclusion at at age twenty two is that in my own strength i I'm just I can't do it. I can force myself conformity, I can become a monk, you know i can I can put myself somewhere where but i but I'm incapable of reaching inside my mind and my heart and removing the very desires, to changing the very desire to to selfishly use other people for my own, whether it's lust or any other way, greed or any of those. So what I find, I come to the conclusion at age 22 that I can't do this in my own strength. I, I want to, I desire to, the desire is there because I'm a child of God. He's put that desire within me. But I realize that, I I need I, I can't do it in my own strength, and so finally I say to God, Lord, I can't do this. And, and in fact, Jim, I was all uh, Jacob. I was almost at the point of giving up. Uh, I, I was almost at the point of saying, God, if this is what it means to be your people, to know, whew, I, I don't think I can do it. I, I had failed so many times and so struggled. And then it was when I came to understand that you don't have to do it alone. My spirit. That's why I sent the Holy Spirit. He is going to work within you and in your life circumstances and bring other people to you to speak into your life and encouragement from his word. And, and, so, and God's spirit is going to orchestrate this transformation of your life. And it's going to be a, a lifelong process, but he's going to patiently deal with you and help you and enable you and strength. And he's going to change you, not just so that you don't have lust, but that he's going to take the very inclination change the way you see people so much that you no longer do that because not just because you're keeping a rule but because you've been changed you no longer have the even that inclination and i think that's the process uh 
uh, of sanctification. And that's when I that's when I came to understand what it meant to walk in the power of God's Spirit, to have trust in His control and His empowering work in my life for the process of sanctification. It's not opting out. It's not saying, okay, now I don't have any. I still want and I still express my faith in that process by seeking to obey God's laws. And But my ultimate faith is not in my ability to obey, not in my ability to perfectly obey uh, all the laws. My ultimate faith is that he is going to work within me to do that transforming, sanctifying work. Uh, sanctifying actually comes from the word holy, saint, to be made holy. And remember, God says, I, you will be holy as I am holy. That was a declared part of God's plan for humanity of salvation. Is not, not only that we would be forgiven, legally, positionally holy, but that in all, in all of our life expression, from in, inside all the way out, our life and our attitudes and our thoughts would be a reflection of his character. And that's what the law is, right? In the, the law and expression, it's not an exhaustive expression of the character of God, but it's a beautiful picture of the, the, the selflessness, the generosity, the love. Uh, isn't that the law, the expression of the character of God that, that he's as, putting within us? As I understand it, yes, it's to make earth like heaven by the hands of human beings. I, I think we're close. We're close, I think. All that I'm saying, I guess maybe that maybe slightly different is surely God has a a part in that in that process of becoming the people of God, right? In other words, well, he wrote the at, Mount, at Mount Sinai, the battle, what, uh, just because God gave him the law uh, at Mount Sinai, that didn't complete the process, did it? No. They had to go out and grow and learn and experience. Well, if you ever look, I don't know about the, all the English Bibles, but all the Hebrew Bibles, even translated to English, the wilderness always has a capital W because it's not just because you and I are traveling through the wilderness. Everybody's traveling through the wilderness. Okay. And so it's it takes both the good and bad to travel through the wilderness. And in that the wilderness uh, journey that's kind of an educational journey, right? I everything mean, in Jewish thought, everything physical is simply a reflection of everything spiritual. Okay. I think that's a good idea. This, the journey to the wilderness, how is that understood in Jewish thought? Well, I mean, Mount Sinai has already passed. Israel you is become the physical of example of heaven. Okay. So we're traveling through, as a, in a spiritual sense, you're traveling through this world, all the troubles, all the woes, the wilderness, mm-hmm. to get to where you want to go. You'll call it heaven. In a physical sense, we'll call it Israel. Okay. Very interesting. I think, I, don't, don't we often see the crossing of, of, across the, uh, the Jordan River into the promised land? Isn't that somewhat, see, even that is not necessarily a picture of Glory I and mean, the finished product, either because you had to go in and conquer and and and, yeah, and so on. Well, you have to get rid of all the foreign gods. Uh, exactly, and that's that's probably a more apt picture of the ex- experience of sanctification than maybe even the the wilderness wanderings. Maybe they're all part of that process. Um, but someday the job will be complete, and we will be entirely and totally and purely the people of God. The process of trans of redemption and transformation will be complete. Well, I know if everybody lived the laws on earth, we'd all be a lot better off. And that is the intent. That's the objective of God's Spirit in our lives, to cause us to more and more and more completely and totally 
reflect the character and the laws of God. Hey, you know, we went through a whole hour without even letting up and talking, and, uh, and I'm glad we did. Folks, we had we'll, three winners. <laughs> we'll have to do our winners for next week. We well, hope you join us again next Sunday evening for more on the Bible Live quiz show. Bible Good night. Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on the Bible Live weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live Broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.